John chapter 9 is where we're going to be hanging out in our Bible. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 9. We're going to read all 34, or we're going to read 34 verses in John chapter 9 today. So if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. If you want one, just give it to them. It'll be on the screen behind me. Maybe you've got it on your phone or tablet. But if you want a Bible, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one so you can follow along as we read today. Um, And we're jumping back into the book of John in this series that we're calling Answers. And we're in the book of John for the sixth straight week because we're trying to learn how to believe more deeply in Jesus so that we might experience more of Jesus in our life. And John is the place to do this exercise. The word believe is mentioned a hundred times in the book of John. It is the backbone of the book. The thought is if you read and understand the book of John, you will understand who Jesus is more and you will be able to put more of your belief in Jesus. The book of John, we've said every week for six weeks, is arranged in three segments. Seven statements from Jesus saying, this is who I am. Seven sermons from Jesus saying, this is really my plan for your life. And then seven signs from Jesus, seven miracles proving that he's supernatural and you should listen to what he has to say about your life. And for five weeks, we've seen Jesus say, this is who I am. Here's what I have for your life. Here's how I'm going to back that up. And people have said, wow. And they bought in and they have followed Jesus. Today is the first time that we see a different outcome. Today, we see a group of people who experience Jesus. And here is the outcome. These people basically get to the end of this miracle. And they said, I know the statements. I've heard the sermons. I saw the signs, but they missed the point completely. They heard who Jesus said he was. They heard what Jesus' plan for their life was. They even experienced a little of the supernatural in their life. But at the end of the day, they didn't care. They missed the point altogether and they didn't really follow Jesus. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you've been raised to know about Jesus all your life. You've heard, you've heard all kinds of statements about Jesus. Maybe you've heard the sermons of Jesus and you understand, you think you understand how Jesus wants you to live your life and the plan that Jesus has for your life. And maybe you've even experienced the supernatural or, or turned to the supernatural every now and then. I saw a study a few weeks ago that said that more than 80% of all Americans have prayed at some point in their life, including nearly 30% of atheists who say when they have no place else to turn, they pray just in case. Uh, all of us at some point kind of seek out the supernatural just in case, and maybe you have heard about Jesus, you've heard the plan of Jesus, every now and then you've even counted on the supernatural, but your life has missed the point altogether of following Jesus, and you're here today, and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. If that's you, maybe you're going to find yourself in John chapter 9, and if you don't think that's you, but we get into John chapter 9 deeply, you might discover, wow, maybe, maybe that is my heart. Maybe I've heard the sermons, maybe I've heard about the man, maybe I've seen some signs, but maybe I've missed the point completely. I think you'll have a better answer to that in about 20 minutes when we get through our Bible study today. John chapter 9 is where we start, verses 1 through 34 say this, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, that word means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with saliva and he put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. 
How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still didn't believe that he'd been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out unbelievable miracle in John chapter 9. But the story of John chapter 9 is not for us to understand and learn about the miracle. The primary lesson of John chapter 9, number one on your sermon notes, if you haven't pulled them out of your, pull them out of your bulletin, the primary lesson of John chapter 9 is more about a mindset than a miracle. As a matter of fact, this text opens with a mindset. What's going on with this guy? What happened that he's born blind? It ends with the exact same mindset. You had to have had something wrong with you to be in this condition. And in the middle, you see Jesus basically kind of getting underneath the rituals of the religious people of his day and saying, y'all have it all wrong and you're not really looking with spiritual eyes at me. The broken mindset of John chapter 9 is this. When our outward symbols of inner longing no longer express the desire of our hearts, our mindset is broken. You say, what do you mean by that? When the outward symbols of our inner desires don't really express the desire of our hearts, our mindset is broken. Well, this chapter holds in it one of the greatest religious traditions in Judaism, at least from 2,000 years ago. And really the key to unlocking this miracle is the thought of this pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam is the key unknown in the understanding of this miracle. If you read this miracle and don't know what that is, it really doesn't make sense to you like it should. But if you read the miracle understanding the pool of Siloam, it's like, wow, 
these people really, really missed it. And it tells us something about this generation and perhaps our generation that still is true. Here's what you need to know about the Pool of Siloam. If you ever travel to Israel with me, like many people in our church already have done, one of the greatest things we're going to do is we're going to take a walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah was a king who lived around 2,400, 2,500 years ago. Um, he was king over the southern kingdom of Israel. It was called Judah when the Assyrians came to attack him. And one of the ways that the Assyrians were going to defeat Jerusalem is they were going to take up their water supply, which was outside the walls of Jerusalem. So Hezekiah said, if we don't get water inside the city, we're doomed. So he put two crews of people to work 24-hour days, seven days a week, one on this side of the mountain, one on this side of the mountain. He said, let's just start digging and maybe you'll come together. And they did. You can walk through this quarter-mile trench that was built 2,500 years ago through running water the entire time in pitch blackness and picture the desperation of these men 24 hours a day, seven days a week trying to get the water into the city so the city wouldn't be destroyed. It's fascinating, but it empties. When you finally step out into the light, you step out into the pool of Siloam that 2,000 years ago was one of the hot spots in Israel. And here's why it was a hot spot in Israel. All Jewish men who usually brought their families were required to travel to Jerusalem at least once in their lifetime. If you lived close enough, you really had to come once a year, at least at the festivals. And your first stop when you had traveled from wherever you lived into Jerusalem, you would come to Jerusalem and you would go to the pool of Siloam before you went to the temple. It was kind of like the city pool. I don't know if any of you grew up in a small enough community like I did that had a city pool, but we didn't live in neighborhoods that had pools in their backyard. I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that had a neighborhood pool. We had to go to the city pool, take our $2.00 pay to get in and hang out with people from all over the city and swim and jump off the diving boards. Our city pool was called Tan Land without a D because that's how you roll in Ohio. Tan. So we would go to Tan Land in southern Ohio and we would hang out at the city pool. It was the place to be. Well, the Pool of Siloam was the place to be in Jerusalem because no one would travel from their home to the temple without going to the Pool of Siloam because they would get filthy on their journey. After traveling 10 miles, 20 miles, hundreds of miles with all your livestock, with all your kids, sleeping out in the open, on dirt roads, mud roads, if it rained, um, for weeks and weeks on end, you're filthy. And before you would go present yourself to God, you would stop at the Pool of Siloam. It was a giant place of ritual, spiritual cleansing. And you would basically go there with this thought in mind. I'm going to approach God, and I realize that my life spiritually is filthy. And I can't change myself from the inside, but this outward symbol of washing my body before I take the pilgrimage up to the steps of the temple, which you can still take today, weaving through the walls of the old city of David, before I go present myself to God, I'm at least going to clean myself on the outside, symbolizing to God that I want him to change me deeply on the inside. I won't present myself to God without this thought that I want him to change me. That was the whole ritual that was going on in John chapter 9. And you could go do that on the Sabbath any day. You could wash before you went to see God. Because the hope was that by cleaning yourself on the outside, God would understand that you wanted to be changed on the inside. But never before had anyone gone broken to the pool of Siloam and in the ritual washing actually been changed. Like everyone went because they were saying, I want to be changed, but nobody actually was changed. But on this day, a man went to the pool of Siloam, he washed, and everything changed in a moment. And everyone jumped on him. Instead of praising the change, they began to curse the change maker who was Jesus. 
And I find it really, really interesting that people who had rituals in their life that showed everyone on the outside how much they wanted to change would curse real change. But I think that still happens in the church today. I think a lot of us use Sunday morning as the pool of Siloam. And we come to church as an outward symbol of getting clean a little bit on the outside so we can feel better, feel closer to God, but then we go back and the reality is we don't want anything to change. And if coming to church really would dramatically change everything, I think we might actually think twice about doing it. Imagine if we lived in some kind of warped Alice in Wonderland world where when you were baptized, and and baptism is a symbol of burying your old life, being clean from everything in your old life, and then raising to walk brand new. Imagine if we were in this Alice in Wonderland kind of warped world that when you went under the water and you came up, literally everything had changed. All your old friends were gone. All your old habits and hang-ups and hang-outs were gone. All your old bad relationships were gone. All all your desires had changed. Imagine you came out of the water and you were a brand new person. I bet less people would want to get baptized. They say, you know, like, if, if that makes me feel close to Jesus, I'll do that. But if that changes everything about my life, I'm not signing up for that. Imagine if when we took communion which is symbolized that we, you know, the body and the blood of Jesus. It's it's symbolizing that we want more of Jesus in us than us. Imagine if every time you took communion, you had to give up a part of yourself in order to take on a part of Jesus. Imagine if to take communion, you had to give up your love of money or your love of this or your love of that. Imagine if every time you took communion, you literally lost a little bit of yourself so you could become a little more like Jesus. How hesitant would you be to say, gosh, I don't know if I'm willing to let go today. You see that every Jewish person that would travel to Jerusalem would stop at the pool with this outward symbol of, oh, you know, I want God to change me deeply. But when somebody really was changed deeply, everyone stopped and said, wait a minute, what, what is happening here? You see, sadly, most people fear and even run from radical change, but that's what Jesus brings. You see, if a broken mindset says my inner longings, they're just really outward symbols. It's not my heart. A correct spiritual mindset says, I want my relationship with Jesus to radically change me. I want to be different. I want to be a totally different person with totally different affections. I want to feel different. I want to love different. I want to learn how to be more patient. I want to be way more like Jesus than myself. I don't like who I was born to be. I want to be who God has created me to be. What if that were the reality of your faith? What would your faith look like? And if this isn't your mindset, why? Because as we go through John chapter 9, we learn that the mindset is more important than the miracle. And we learn this, that number two, my life with Jesus is intended to be a light in a dark world. My life with Jesus is intended to be a light in a dark world. In John chapter 9 verse 3, the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? There was this thought 2,000 years ago that if anything bad had happened to you, it was a consequence of some sin that either you had or your parents had, especially if you had a defect from birth, people thought, man, his, their mom and dad must have really messed up for God to curse him like this. And Jesus is like, that's, that's not how it works. Jesus said in John 9, 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as we look at John 9, Jesus said, God didn't cause this man's blindness. And I want to stop right there for a minute because some of you are going through a really difficult season. Some of you are struggling with massive tension in your life. 
Some of you are dealing with massive heartache. And you need to hear this morning, God did not cause that tension. God God did not place that difficulty on you. God isn't making your life harder just so you'll know him more. Jesus said, listen, God didn't cause this man's blindness, but God is going to use this blindness so that people can see him. I don't know what difficult season you're going through, but I know two things about it. God didn't cause it, but he'd like to use it. If you would lean into Jesus and begin to let Jesus change the seasons of your life and change the emotions of your heart and change the affections of your life. God doesn't cause the difficult things in your life, but he'd love to use them so that as you become closer to Jesus, people will look at you and say, okay, that's how you get through a difficult season in life. As a matter of fact, as we look at this miracle, this miracle actually isn't as much about this man's eyes being opened as it is about those around him who could see actually having their spiritual eyes open so they could see Jesus. See, this is a blind man who in his spiritual eyes saw Jesus, which gave him physical sight, so that all the people who had physical sight could be cured of their spiritual blindness. That's the real miracle of John chapter 9. And it worked. When we get down to verse 8, I want you to see what's read, and I want you to see, that I, I believe this is maybe the key of the learning to this miracle. It says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, it only looks like that guy. But it was him. Two things. I've gone over and over and over and over again to wrap my mind around what's happening in John chapter 9. First, you need to know the man who was healed did not announce what Jesus had did for him. Can't find it anywhere. You can't find it anywhere that this guy made a sign that this guy stood on a street corner, that this guy posted on social media. Like, you can't read anywhere that this guy said, look what Jesus did for me. He didn't say anything. He didn't announce anything. He did exactly what Jesus told him, and then he went on with his life. He didn't say anything about what Jesus had done for him. However, everyone who knew the man could see what Jesus did for him. Is that the testimony of your Christianity? Are you someone who would say, you know, I'm not really comfortable talking about spiritual things. I'm not comfortable talking about my faith. And the reality is I never talk to anyone about Jesus, but everyone knows I love Jesus. How? Because your life shows it. This man didn't tell anyone what had happened, but it says his neighbors and anyone who knew him said, wait a minute, this dude used to be blind and now he can see. And they asked him. And then he told him about Jesus. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, it's your responsibility to help people know who Jesus is. But I had a college professor who used to say it this way. Every time we had class, at, before he dismissed us, he would say, preach the gospel every day, and if you have to, use words. Preach the gospel every day, and if you have to, use words. You know what he was saying? Live for Jesus. Everyone will see it. And if they don't, you can tell them. But if you'll just live for Jesus, everyone will see it. If you'll just be different than who you were, you won't even have to say anything. Jesus said it this way in Matthew five fourteen through 16, in the great message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, you speaking to his people, you are the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He doesn't say let your mouth run all the time. And tell everyone how wrong they are spiritually. He said, just let your light shine. They will see your God if you will let your light shine. 
So I was praying this verse this week. And I had a conversation with God. I've told you I'm weird. If you don't have conversations with God, it's, it's cool. But, you know, like I'm a pastor and I pray. And when I talk to God, sometimes in my spirit, I feel like he talks back. You know, like we don't, I told you last week, he sounds like Morgan Freeman. That was a joke. You know, it's just like in my spirit, I know when God's speaking to me. So we have a man who doesn't even go to our church who gave a substantial amount to help us build our church. And he called me two weeks ago and he said, I'd love to see the new building. Can you give me a tour? And can we pray? So I'd love to. So Monday, he came by, and we spent an hour going through the building. And after we got done, he said, can I just pray for you? So, oh, absolutely. So we're standing out in front of the building, and we're, we're like right outside where the front doors will be, and we're raising our hands, and we're praying. And I'm thinking as we're praying, I hope nobody sees us because they'll never come to this church because there's some weird guys out here talking in the sky with their hands up. But it's beside the point. So he prayed. He prayed for me and Danielle and our kids. Real sweet. All our volunteers, our leaders, our, our people. And then I started praying. And as I'm, as I'm praying, I'm, I'm thinking scripture. I always try to pray scripture. So I said, Lord, let this building be a light on a hill so that everyone in this city, you know, can see Jesus. And like, as I'm praying, I felt like God began to speak to me. And he basically said this, as I let this building, be, he said, Christian, it's a building. Buildings can't be lights. Don't pray for the building to be a light. It's a building. The people who come to the building have to be lights. People are not going to find Jesus driving by a building. They're going, to be, they're going to find Jesus watching the life and interacting with a Christian who has light. Stop praying for the building. Start praying for the people. If the people are light, the building might hold a ministry that helps people find Jesus. But stop praying for the building because there's a building across the street and there's a couple buildings down. People don't even notice buildings after the first time they drive by them. But they see people whose lives look different. I said, all right, God, I got you. So people can see your life. People can smell your life. Did you know that spiritually? In 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says this. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We change the smell, not, not the smell, but we change the environments and the atmospheres that we're in. Have you ever walked in some place that has a pleasing aroma? Have you ever been to one of them little cupcake stores? Oh my goodness, they smell so good. I remember when they started building Jack Stack at 470 and Pryor Road. You know, I don't know if any building's ever been a light, but that one might be. I mean, when you pulled up to that intersection and they were smoking that barbecue, it's like, oh Lord, for a meat terry And like that is, you know, thank you, Jesus, for Jack Stack. I mean, that, that was a pleasing aroma. Last, uh, last Saturday, Casey had her piano recital. She did awesome. and took her to Baskin-Robbins afterwards to say good, good job. And just she and I went in. Um, and we walked in. And she said, Dad, I love the smell of this place. And I said, I do too. And I thought, I need not to, I, I should not come here so much. Um, but I do. I love the smell of the place. A pleasing aroma. Have you ever smelled something that's, that's not a pleasing aroma? You know, my, my son went through a phase when he was younger, and maybe your kids have done this, where like he would only eat like one thing every day. And for him, it was like a Happy Meal from McDonald's. That was the only thing he would eat every day. And we, like, we would take him to preschool, and his teachers would say, he hadn't eaten anything today. And we would take him to the doctor, and it's like, he's losing weight. And we're like, they're going to take him away from us. Like, you know, it's like, why won't our kid eat? But he liked Happy Meals. We're like, okay, you know, McDonald's. So like every day, it seemed like for months on the way home from preschool, we'd take him to McDonald's and get him a Happy Meal, four, four nuggets, little fries, and a little chocolate milk. And he would leave most of it in the car when he left. But every now and then he'd get one of those little chocolate milk canisters, 
shoved up underneath the, the passenger seat in our car. I don't know if you're aware of like the pasteurization process of chocolate milk in the summer in a car, but it goes like, I think, I think from chocolate milk to like a chocolate yogurt, maybe to perhaps like chocolate cottage cheese, maybe. Um, and then if you let it sit for just a little longer, it will explode. Um, and when you get in the car after chocolate cottage cheese has exploded all over it, there's an aroma and it's not pleasing at all. I remember after about the third time that happened, ordering Sprite and thinking, you know what? It's just, you know, who cares what they say about pop and soda and all that stuff. We'd rather have a clean car than healthy teeth, get the Sprite. I mean, it was like, it was not a pleasing aroma, stunk. You know, the same thing happens spiritually. Some of you, some of you are are gonna walk into work tomorrow morning and your whole job site's gonna smell better because you're there. Had one of our college kids who contacted me this week. She just started a new job, wanted to see if she could get off and go to youth camp. So she asked her boss, she kind of said, I had this youth camp thing, I'm gonna go as a counselor. And she found out that not only was the boss a Christian, but the boss had gone to youth camps and worked at youth camps. And she sent me a text like of, of, of how excited she was, but I could read through the text. It's like the whole, now that I know she's a Christian, she knows I, I'm a Christian. It's like the whole atmosphere of work has changed. She didn't say it smells different, but that's what Paul is saying. It just, it's different. Some of you are going to leave here and you're going to walk into somebody's house to celebrate Mother's Day. And when you walk in, everything is going to be better. Some of you are going to leave here and you're going to go to your kid's game. And when you show up, everything's just going to be better because your life is a pleasing aroma because of who Jesus is in you. And for some of you, the opposite will be true. Your life stinks spiritually. And you're going to walk into your job tomorrow and your attitudes and your actions and your interactions are going to stink spiritually. And it's going to make people think poorly of Jesus because they know you're a Christian. Some of you are going to show up at your kids' sports games and the umpires are going to hear you walking in the gate and think, oh, Lord, here comes Bobby Joe. You know, I hope I call good balls and strikes today because your attitude just stinks and your language stinks. Some of you, the way you talk to your spouse stinks spiritually. The way you treat your children stinks spiritually. If you're a boss, the way you treat your workers, it stinks spiritually. If you're a worker, the way you talk about your boss behind his back stinks spiritually. The way you speak about the the politician you're not going to vote for this fall stinks spiritually. And everyone says, that's a Christian and that's what's coming out of them. And you're just building this sour milk spiritual smell where people are like, if that's the car that gets you to heaven, I don't want to ride in it because it stinks. You see, Jesus says, your life is intended to be a light. Your life is intended to be different. Your life is intended to make an impact in the world spiritually. So we learn, number three, that our story is our sign. Our story is our sign. Our life and the change in our life becomes the testimony to the world of who Jesus is. In John 20, 31, John says, I wrote my entire book so that by hearing these things about Jesus, you might believe in him. These are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Some of you think, man, I've got a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Like if they could just witness Jesus do one miracle, I know they believe. 
Man, I wish I lived in the days of the Bible because if my friend, if my family, if my spouse, if my kids, if my coworkers, if they could just see Jesus do one miracle, I know that they would believe. And Jesus says, I agree. And that miracle is you. You are the one who's supposed to show them who I am by the change in your life. The reality is if Jesus showed up today and walked on water, that would make the news cycle for about three days before something else would bury it. But your changed life every day, all day, over a period of time is as much of a miracle or more than a miracle than what Jesus does in John chapter 9. If people could only see Jesus do a miracle, they would believe. Well, what if they saw you? What if you were the sign? In the early 90s, there was a group of prophets that called themselves the Ace of Base. And they wrote a prophecy called, I saw the sign that made the Billboard 100. And I was reading this song this week and I thought, I think that they stole that from John chapter 9. It says, I got a new life. You would hardly recognize me. I'm so glad. These words to the song, not scripture. And then the, the, ver- the chorus goes this way. I saw the sign. And it opened up my eyes, I saw the sign. Life is demanding without understanding. I saw the sign, it opened up my eyes, I saw the sign. No one's gonna drag you up to get into the light where you belong. But where do you belong? They didn't write this song. This guy in John 9 wrote this song. They pulled him back and they were like, what's going on? And he's like, I got a new life. You would hardly recognize me, I can see. It's like, they stole that line. What happened? I saw, the, I saw Jesus. No, give glory to God. Well, I, I'd like to, but I saw Jesus. And he basically said, I can't drag you to where I am or I would. I would love for you to believe in Jesus. All I can tell you is my life has been changed. In John 9, 25, we hear the greatest, I believe, witnessing tool in the history of the world. Tell someone what Jesus did in your life. John 9, 25, he replied, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. He didn't even know any theology. He said, Jesus might be a sinful guy. I'm not really sure. Here's the only thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. That's it. That's what I know about Jesus. I was blind, but now I see. You know, the miraculous sign of Christianity always goes like this. I was once this, but now I'm this. I used to be this way, and then I met Jesus, and now I am this way. The story of Christianity, the sign of Christianity is the sign of change. You can't fully embrace Christ if you will not fully embrace change. Wanting to be clean a little bit on the outside without being changed completely on the inside is not true Christianity. And as you read through what Jesus did, you see that change is the key. You know, if you've really met and you really follow Jesus, the dramatic change that has happened in you will be a billboard screaming out to people that Jesus is in your life. We've baptized nearly 250 people, maybe a little more than that since we started our church. And everybody who's been baptized has written their story of change, who they are and what Jesus has done in them. We're putting those testimonies together in a book to present to some people who helped us build our church to just say, hey, you invested in us before anybody came and we want you to know here's what's happening. And I've been going back through some of those testimonies on paper and in my head and listening to people saying, I was this and now I'm this. And I'm seeing Jesus work. In John 9, the man said, I once was blind, but now I can see. One of our people said, I once was filled with anger and rage, but I've learned to forgive and I've learned to pray. 
Somebody said, I used to have to party to feel alive, but connecting to Jesus and worshiping and serving people makes me more alive than I've ever been. Another person said, I used to question everything and everyone, but I've learned to trust Jesus and what he says about the world and everything in it. Somebody real honestly admitting, I used to be an arrogant jerk and resist all authority, but I've learned how to humble myself and serve people in authority in a way that shows them that Jesus is in my life. Those who say, I used to chase relationships with the opposite sex because that gave me value, but now I realize that God values me just the way that I am. Those who say, my words used to hurt and harm and abuse, but now I've learned to encourage and give life and speak sensitively. I used to have a temper. I'm learning to have self-control. Those who said, I used to worship money and I'd do anything to make more. Now I've learned to be generous and I try to give more. Do you see change? Do you see Jesus? Those are miraculous statements. But I feel like American Christianity has this statement. I once was blind, but now I'm blind and I go to church. Think about that for a minute. Is that Christianity? Is that a miracle? I once was blind, but now I'm blind and I go to church. Reverse engineer these statements and tell me if this is Christianity. I once was filled with anger and rage, but now I'm filled with anger and rage and I go to church. That's not change. I used to have to party to feel alive, but now I party to feel alive and I go to church. That's not change. I used to question everything and everyone, but now I question everything and everyone and I serve in the kids ministry. Dear God, help us. That's not change. I used to be an arrogant jerk and resist all authority. But now I'm an arrogant jerk and I resist all authority, but I'm serving in ministry. That's not change. I used to chase relationships with the opposite sex because that gave me value. But now I chase relationships with the opposite sex that give me value and I go to church. That's not change. My words used to hurt and harm and abuse, but now my words hurt and harm and abuse and I go to church. That's not change. I used to have a temper, but now I have a temper and I go to church. That's not change. I used to worship money and I'd do anything to make more, but now I worship money and I'd do anything to make more and I go to church. That's not, that's not change. You see the problem between maybe who we are and what happened in John 9? You see, change comes from the inside. Pool of Siloam, go look clean on the outside so that I can go to God. But if something were to change on the inside, that'd just be weird. No, that'd just be Jesus. I once was blind, but now I can see. You see, experiencing church without experiencing change doesn't really show Jesus to anybody. And it's possible if you experience church without change, that maybe you've not experienced Jesus yet. And God showed me this week in the middle of a prayer, Christian, don't pray for a building. Buildings don't show anyone anything. Pray for the people. Pray for the change in the hearts of people to be a light, to be proof, to be a sign in this community that Jesus is real and he's working. Let me ask you this final question this morning before we pray. What needs to change in you so that people can see Jesus? What one thing needs to change in you so that people can see Jesus. You used to be this, and you met Jesus, and now you're this. And, and don't put, and now I go to church.
I used to be this, but now I'm this because of Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And while your eyes are closed and your head is bowed, would you open up your heart and your mind to that question? What needs to change in you that your life might be a sign that Jesus is real and he changes life? What needs to change in you to make you different? And I'm not talking about your schedule on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about your soul every day. What needs to change in you? His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you just admit that to God? You know, the quickest way to do business with God is the ABC method. Admit, believe, confess. You admit to God there's an area in your life that has to change so people can see Jesus more. You believe that through prayer, God can help you do that. And then you confess in prayer. God, I need help. Help me. It's as simple as ABC. I admit there's an area in my life that's got to change. I believe Jesus can change that. So through prayer, I'm going to confess, here's what I need help with. I'm going to ask God to help me. And I'm, I'm going to hope my life will be a sign to people. ABC.